Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my new show that brings a uniquely rational perspective to important issues facing our society today. Today's guest is Jennifer Say, author and businesswoman. She was chief marketing officer and brand president of Levi Strauss & Company until 2022. Due to her speaking out about the COVID lockdowns and particularly K-12 school closures, her latest book is Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Jennifer Say and I have a fascinating and truly important conversation about her courageous stand in facing the new corporate wokeism, an unprecedented movement in private sector companies that makes it very difficult for young people entering the job market and navigating their careers, and is frankly a movement that threatens some of our most foundational values as a free-thinking, ethical society. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned. Welcome. Today's guest is Jennifer Say, author, businesswoman, and mother of four. Jennifer was chief marketing officer and brand president of Levi Strauss and Company until 2022, ending a 20-year career there due to her vocal criticism of K-12 school closures. She is a very accomplished person even before that. She was a seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Gymnastics Team, and Jennifer won the 1986 U.S. Women's All-Around Championship. Her latest and inspirational story is in her book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. Very happy to have you here. Uh, you know, you're, you're a hero to many people. You, you may have had that experience as a teenager as well, but in a totally different uh, setting. I'd like to begin with allowing you to sort of retell your personal story of really what happened at Levi's. I know that many people are already aware, but I'd like our audience to hear it directly from you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was a longtime Levi's employee. I started in 1999. Who does that anymore? Stays at a company over over 20 years. I started as an entry-level marketing assistant and climbed my way all the way up the ladder and became the chief marketing officer in 2013. Spent eight years in that job, which is a really long time in the corporate world for a chief marketing officer. We used to say it's a slippery seat. Uh, it's a very public facing job and you face a lot of uh, criticism and you can easily lose your, you lose your job. But I was uh, very successful in the role and helped the company to a successful IPO in 2019. And we had been near bankruptcy, this, you know, storied, iconic company back in 2011, but we turned it around and, uh, you know, without patting myself on the back too much in no small, small part due, due to my efforts with my, my team. Um, and then I became the brand president in 2020, which put me in line to be CEO. It's certainly the sort of first seat in line to be CEO. Uh, but a few months before that, in March of 2020, right from the very beginning of the school closures, I was very outspoken about the harms that would be done to children uh, with long-term public school closures, the learning loss, the mental health impacts, all of the things we see now playing out. Um, I said they would happen because anyone with two eyes and a brain and a, a degree of common sense, I'm not a doctor, but you know, it, it didn't take much to understand 
the age stratification of risk and that children mercifully were at little to no risk um, from COVID right. and that these actions we were taking were absolutely going to harm them. Uh, so I was very outspoken from the very beginning. I have four children, as you said. I, they were all in public schools. And I just, you know, it wasn't just about my kids. It was about the 50,000 public school children in San Francisco, 60% of whom are low-income kids. They were going to be harmed the most. And I was warned repeatedly over the course of two years that I needed to stop. Um, I was hounded by employees and a social media mob. I was vilified and called a racist and every horrible name you can think of, horrible, unemployable name, right? Nobody wants a racist as their grand That's president. exactly true. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, and this is something that people don't really uh, completely uh, understand until you experience it yourself is that it's actually harmful, that, that kind of cancellation, that kind of accusation it's not just personally offensive. There are consequences for the, it, it, it's actually effective, sadly, but go ahead. You know, it's a, it's a great point, Scott, because at a certain point, all the warnings that I got, and I can sort of describe the form that those took in a moment, uh, at a certain point, it was clear to my peers and my boss, the CEO, that it wasn't going to stop me, that I was going to continue to advocate for children. But I'll tell you what, it certainly kept other people quiet. And that allowed me right. to look like this fringe crazy person because I was standing out there alone saying things that were utterly commonsensical, let's be clear, and have, Absolutely. have, have played themselves out as true. But it certainly kept others silent. And that allowed me to be sort of pushed off to the side as this, this crazy person. So after two years of warnings and being told that I was reputationally harmful to the company, although none of that was true, we were performing really, really well, uh, I was told in January of 22 that there was no place for me at the company anymore. You know, the arc of my life and my contributions didn't matter. Nothing mattered. I had violated this tenet, which, which I guess was, you know, locked down, used children as shields um, to protect the elderly, which is not the way our society is supposed to work. Um, it was a tenet, let's be clear, of the Democratic Party platform, a party that I used to belong to. And I was told there wasn't a place for me at the company anymore. I was offered severance uh, to stay quiet on the terms of my leaving, and I refused that severance and quit very publicly. Yes. And now I'm talking to you, because I wanted to be able to talk to you and people like you about the illiberalism and the censorship that is happening in our institutions. We all know about it on college campuses, but it's alive and well in corporate America as well. And I think it's just too dangerous not to be talked about. Yes. And I think this is really uh, something that is very important. The, the danger that, you know, uh, in, in many ways, corporate America, private business, was traditionally, at least I always thought, you know, uh, shielded from the the political winds of the day, the 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 mob sort of uh, goals of society, because there's a bottom line in business that is far more obvious uh, than there is in, say, academics or in other, uh, you know, other jobs. And this is sort of, uh, it, it's it's a shock and it's frightening that even private sector businesses have uh, become what, what I would call woke. Uh, and I'd like you to comment, uh, you know, are, are, you've been in, in business for your, your entire life. Uh, you know, 
is this a shock to you that this happened generally as well as uh, even separate from your own personal? I mean, you, you've seen this. You, we see it in other businesses. What, what is going on? How do you account for this? And, you know, how surprised are you that, that the private sector has responded this way? You know, I think you're right. At the end of the day, business is all about the bottom line. And it's why I think ultimately it will come back to center on this because if companies don't deliver profits to their shareholders, they don't get to stay in business. If they don't deliver profits, they go under over time. If they don't attract new consumers, and let's face it, there's a good number of consumers that aren't uh, sort of aligned with this with this approach. They feel sort of left out of the way these brands are positioning themselves. So I think ultimately it'll take some time, but it will come back to what I call normie capitalism and, you know, sort of require that companies get back to delivering a great product at a fair price um, and hopefully treating employees fairly and paying them well. But that is not where we are right now. And I would say it happened slowly and then all at once. And I certainly was caught off guard. Um, I did not realize um, the intensity with which I would be shunned and then ultimately banished. It started probably in the mid-2010s and I think really accelerated in the summer of 2020. And, and COVID accelerated it, I, I, I will say that. Sure. Um, but essentially, you know, the way I describe it, it, it serves sort of multiple purposes. The first of which is, first of all, you have to remember these coastal companies in particular, you know, CEOs are now kind of of the left. We didn't used to think of them that way. We thought of business leaders as largely of, of the right. That's not the case anymore now. Whether they are privately, publicly, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Publicly, they right. take these left-wing stances. And it's an attempt to profit off of millennial and Gen Z activism. They think if we align our companies with these younger consumers who buy more and spend more on most products, they do, certainly in fashion, you know, my, my sector, um, that they will sell more and be more profitable. That's a cynical view, but it's absolutely true. That, that's why it's done. It also is an attempt, you know, in taking these woke stances, they shield themselves from scrutiny, from the press. Everybody loves them, right? They're saving the world. They're do-gooders saving the world. They're not greedy businessmen. And they love that attention. They want to be celebrated for that. And the press is failing to interrogate their basic business practices, as we saw with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. I will say these business leaders also, it used to be enough to be really rich. You know, that was enough. That made them happy. Not anymore. They want to be celebrated as heroes, philanthropists and altruists. And so that is another reason why they take these stances and convince themselves that they really believe in them and that they are true. It's not cool to be the rich guy, right? You have to disavow your privilege. So, you know, they pretend that they're in it to save the world and not to make a ton of money. But it's all right. a marketing. It's a pose. And it allows them to continue to line their pockets and pilfer the company's coffers like Sam Bankman-Fried, although he got caught in the end, um, at the expense of everyday employees. Let's be clear, it's at the expense of everyday employees. Right. I mean, I think what's fascinating is that uh, it is virtue signaling for their, I, they meaning the, the heads of companies, their, their private uh, lives, their positions with their neighbors and the media. But there's also a very cynical uh, I think profit-driven, like you're pointing out, part of this virtue signaling because they're targeting their woke customers. So it's it's a very complicated mix. I think you bring up a couple of other interesting things that I can totally identify with. You too were like me, 
we're, we're naive. We, we were pursuing and saying things that were obvious, that were sort of moral and ethical duties of individuals, of adults, of parents uh, who have children, but even if you don't, to see destruction of young people with the school closures that were completely contrary to the evidence, but also so harmful and so known to be harmful, uh, to sit there and stay silent about it to me was was uh, was really sinful. I think even if you weren't personally uh, a parent, and so uh, it's it's almost uh, shocking. It is shocking, and still I am shocked at how our American society who, of course, professes to be the most ethical, moral society of all, allowed our children to be destroyed, in fact, actively harmed them by, as you alluded to, using them as shields in theory uh, for the transmission uh, of the virus, even though, you know, even if you believe that it works, we're now injecting children with, a, with an experimental drug in the hope or the misbelief that it stops the transmission but, you know, like I've said many times, I'm a father. One of my roles is to be a shield for my children. That's right. I mean, that is abhorrent to think that our children are being used as shields for us. You know, uh, the other thing is that, you know, you and I are both, if I, if I may make a, an assumption, apolitical. I, you know, I, I never even thought, I was shocked that people thought my position in the White House was actually political. I came in because people were dying. And if you thought that the people at the top were incompetent, that's you urgent to get in there and help when you're asked. And you were speaking out uh, for children, for your own children, but also for other children who were in the public schools, while the private schools in the San Francisco Bay Area were open. Uh, you know, and we've seen this time and time again, the, the uh, hypocrisy of, of the elites who were the people making the policy, the powerful they didn't live by the rules that they were uh, advocating for others. You know, I mean, this is something that is really reprehensible. Uh, you know, what is it about you? And I'm asked this myself, but I'm curious to hear your story. What is it about you that let you keep going in the face of intense pressure? I mean, this is your, you know, a, a big part of your life to work at Levi's, obviously. And you took not only massive personal pressure, but you ultimately left the position and took a stance, and I'm sure people have asked you, what is it about your background that allowed you to do this? You know, I ask myself that a lot, Scott, because I, I am not somebody who courts controversy. I don't like being disliked. I like to build bridges. Uh, you know, I'm not one to sort of scream in people's faces about my beliefs being right and theirs being wrong. But, you know, I think my background as a child athlete is somewhat relevant here. Uh, I was an elite gymnast, as you mentioned, and I endured a very abusive and cruel training environment. And as I grew up and left the sport, I continued to suffer from those conditions. It was emotionally and physically abusive. And as we now know wow. uh, from the Larry Nasser case, there was widespread sexual abuse as well. And as I tried to make sense of that over two decades of my adult life, one of the things I came to understand is that adults use children um, for their own success and their own means, you know, money and medals for the U.S. Olympic Committee, for the US, for USA Gymnastics. And I came to understand and wish that adults with common sense had stood up for me, a child, 
um, who wasn't really able to stand up for herself uh, because children don't have a voice and a platform in the same way. And we try to please the adults around us, or at least I did. Um, and I think that's that's pretty common. And so, of course, I I carried that with me, you know, um, and I I won't let people do it in 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 as best as I can. I I won't let people harm children. I will speak out um, on their behalf. And when I spoke out about the abuses in the sport, I was also vilified in a much smaller kind of venue and community than 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 this latest round. Um, and yet, ultimately, I was redeemed. It took 10 years, but people came around yes. to what I was saying. And so I also held that close to me as well. And I thought, well, if I can reason with people and I can use data and I can point it out with common sense, ultimately, everyone will see because it's so obvious. And I think that is the case. But it, it I, I the, do, too. I, I think it's the case. But it's a, but it's the, a rough uh, up and a, down road to get there. It's a rough go, and it really stinks to go first, as I often say. And, you know, I didn't beat the clock on this. You know, I, I ran out of time, and people didn't see it before my time came to an end at Levi's. I, But I, I guess I just, I believe in standing up for truth and for children, and I couldn't sacrifice those two principles just to keep my job and get paid a lot of money which i would have gotten paid a lot of money <laughs> um and my future uh, sure. is much more uncertain now uh but i just i don't know if you're not willing to fight for truth and children what are you willing to fight for that, that's exactly right and i you know i think that this is something that uh, again is still shocking i like to put it that uh, you know i i never thought i was some kind of a moral or ethical person until I looked around and saw everybody else. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's sort of shocking. And the, and the other point here is, again, speaking to the idea that this was not political for you, it was not political for me. And I think, you know, uh, it sounds like we were both raised in the same sort of political environment. I was raised in a very, very Democrat party home uh, in, I was from Chicago, you, you, your whole life, uh, you, you were, uh, on the sort of political liberal side of the spectrum. And, you know, this has nothing to do with politics yet. Those who want to vilify people who spoke against this narrative often. And, and, and for me personally, because I, of course I stood next to president Trump to try to help the country. Uh, we're identified as some sort of an extreme uh, political narrative. And, and again, like many of these things, the accusation reveals the political lens of the accusers, That's right. not, not, not of us. And so, you know, this is, you know, I always say freedom should not be uh, a political issue. And, you know, moral behavior, ethical behavior, behavior toward children is just is, is inexplicable to me still. Yeah, I, I think we're, you know, I'm still trying to make sense of it all. It's only been a year and it's been a whirlwind. But I think we are living in a world where ideology trumps truth at this point. Sorry to use the word Trump because that complicates it. But, you know, no, right, right. I, ideology, some, you know, actions in service of a larger ideology, which is political, that is viewed as sort of virtuous, even if it is the denial of truth. And in this case, the denial of truth was, you know, saying things like prolonged school closures were not going to be harmful to children. In fact, if you advocated for open schools, you were a racist. That's a lie. That is a patent lie. 
Um, but I can I can name it for in around many issues outside of COVID, many issues pertaining to to health. You know, when we look at the body positivity movement, for instance, which I am largely in favor of, no one should think that their value comes from how they look. You know, I was an anorexic um, as a as a child training in the sport. I have a lot of heart for this issue. No one's value should be assigned to how they look or what they eat. And yet, the ideology around body positivity, healthy at any size, that that's false. That's a lie. We are not healthy at any size. And it's, it's, it's criminal, frankly, to pretend that that is the case. We don't have to assign value yes. to a person, negative value to a person, if they are morbidly obese and and suffer some of the health repercussions from that but we we owe people the truth yeah i mean it's so this is one of the things that uh is shocking and uh in the midst of everything i haven't gotten uh, around to writing about this but i've written about it in the past uh you know obesity is the number one public health issue in the united states and obesity and Alzheimer's or degenerative disease of the brain are the top two issues all over the world in health. There's no question about this in every civilized society. And you walk around lower Manhattan in Soho and the village and you see the big billboards and it's shocking to see the, uh, not just, it's not about accepting people for who they are. It's about making it seem like it's something to admire if somebody is obese. It's something to shoot for. It's a it's a goal. It's not. It's dangerous. It's bad for your health. And, you know, obesity, uh, you know, in medical science, the literature is filled with the linkages between almost, you know, most of the killers disease wise, uh, you know, not just diabetes, but a lot of cancers, all kinds of things. I mean, there's nothing really more harmful that is a lifestyle factor than yeah. being significantly overweight. And, you know, again, we're harming People, there's an explosion, by the way, of obesity in the young children and yeah. not just in college age kids where, very... you know, more than half had a massive unwanted weight gain of 28 pounds on average during the lockdowns of 2020 alone. But young kids, teenagers and even younger are rapidly increasing in their obesity incidence. I mean, this is really a shock to people who care about public health. And of course, lockdowns, eliminating physical activity, isolating people, making them depressed. I mean, all these things roll into one. So it's yeah. very important that you spoke out, especially you, I think, are a unique voice in this because, you know, you're, you're, you're coming out as a woman. OK, the liberal side of the political spectrum, they like to say they're for women. Uh, they like to say they're for children. You're a woman, a mother of four, a highly successful, in fact, a a star in the corporate world and you were just they tried to destroy you they yeah i mean i guess in a sense they did they certainly took my job away they did not take my platform away they gave me a bigger one so i guess in that sense they were unsuccessful but yes you know a campaign that i created that helped lead the brown back to health we used the tagline use your voice and it was not political it was just it was an exhortation to people to kind of be their authentic selves speak up and have these important conversations, which I still believe in. And, you know, Scott, you and I probably agree on some things, disagree on some things, but I would defend your right to say anything (laughs) that you said in good faith so that we could have a conversation about it. Um, And yet, 
suddenly, and this is when I was taken aback, I realized about a year into my advocacy that 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 tagline, use your voice, did not apply to me. You know, this idea that we needed to listen to all women did not apply to me because I was not furthering the ideological, this, this view around COVID that became a tenet of the Democratic Party platform. And if you do that and you violate any one of those tenets, they will banish you with such force and they will assume if you sort of veer one iota in either direction that you are all of the other horrible, evil things, which is why I didn't have to say anything that was racist. I never said a big, I, I didn't say anything, but they will right. assign that value to you. As well as, I mean, the other thing I was, you know, anti-mask, which I am proudly, especially now that we don't do anything anti-science, anti-trans. I was fat phobic. I was a eugenicist. Like all of these things get assigned to you. I was all right. QAnon. I had to look up what QAnon was. I didn't even know what it was. Right. I had never it, heard of it. It's right. like it was just bananas. But if you dared to ask a question. If you dared, you know, because I challenged all the restrictions to children. That was my concern. I, I, I was opposed to all of it and didn't believe that any of it worked. But I thought kids could be a bridge builder, an apolitical bridge builder. If you dared say, does it does this make any sense to put a two year old who wears diapers, who cannot put her shoes on the right feet in a mask all day at preschool when she is just learning to talk? You are suddenly an enemy of the state, of, of, of the party, essentially. Right. And dangerous, and dangerous. And I think this was one of the strategies, of course. Uh, there, it's a strategy as well as a, a, a consequence of what they knew, they, the other side. The strategy is to demonize anyone who spoke against the, the narrative, if you want to use that word, but also to make you seem dangerous. Yeah. Okay, anyone who spoke against lockdowns was deemed dangerous, uh, and therefore inc increase the fear of, of even listening to you and also justifying a censorship, by the way. Uh, and, and, you know, the second part is it reveals how weak their arguments were because yeah. they could never, and I'm including, including my Stanford University uh, colleagues uh, who uh, had no argument and never even specified anything I was saying that was wrong because everything I said was correct in my case. Uh, yet their argument was only ad hominem attack, demonization, straw man argument, uh, because they have no data. You're not going to hear these people with the data. The data was always, even from the earliest days of the spring of 2020, that kids were, were not at high risk, healthy kids at all. They had minuscule risk and kids were not significant spreaders. It did not endanger teachers or the community to open schools. And there were massive harms from closing schools. This stuff was known in the spring of 2020. And of course, our European peer nations almost saw them open schools in the fall yeah. of 2020. Yet in uh, California, of course, our state, your former state, uh, but most of the country, we shut down schools out of complete ignorance, fear. And it, it, it's a very, very uh, heinous sort of abuse of public health guidance. Yeah, and the, you know what you yeah, described I, I, is what allow them to manufacture a consensus, right? Because if you push anyone off to the side, any common sense challenger like you or like me, and you know you you're a doctor for goodness sake, I'm not, but I know how to read data and look at numbers. It doesn't take a genius to be able to do it and to see that in the early days the median age of death was 82. That alone tells you um, that children were really not at any any real risk. 
And as you stated, Denmark, I think, opened schools three weeks after they shut them because they said the harms were just too great to children, not to mention women in the workforce and all of these other sort of cascading cascading harms. But if you right. shunt every, anyone like you or I, no matter what our credentials or our thoughtfulness or any of it, no matter how much data we use, then you're able to present this manufactured consensus and pretend that the expert class all agrees. The problem with that, as you well know, is when you eliminate any debate or dissent, then you then you can't sort of work towards getting to the truth. I, I really believe, and I'm sure you do as well, that if there were a reasoned public conversation about this, schools would have opened sooner. And that is the problem with the speech suppression, because what happens Absolutely. is propaganda furthered by the government, and in this case, big pharma, becomes true. And that is, that's authoritarianism. Let's be clear. That is, and that's why propaganda is, is effective, really. And they capitalize on fear, of course. But, you know, you, I, I, I think it's very important. Our children were not just harmed physically and emotionally. They were also uh, abused, in a sense, because they cannot learn critical thinking if they don't hear disparate views. By definition, of course, you can never judge what's correct and what isn't if you don't hear two different arguments. And uh, that was a huge failure as parents, as role models, as universities, when you suppress freedom uh, of, of exchange of ideas, really, uh, you're really destroying children's ability to deal with their own future problems. I think it's a very, very treacherous, harmful pathway that we have uh, really started on. Are... We're, we're not just the idea of it. It's, it's there. We need to reverse it. What, speaking of that, so, uh, you know, I'd like to finish with this, which is, you know, young people uh, that are thinking about freedom and that do believe in individual choice and in certain moral and ethical values uh, and have a compass on what to do, what's right and what isn't, you know, their, their careers are uh, treacherous. The pathway in the private sector now uh, you know, is very difficult. It's not just trying to get a job in a competitive field. It's filling out a, a you know, a statement about what you've done and and to promote diversity. But it's more than that. You have to keep your mouth shut. People are afraid to speak up. What what kind of advice do you have for young people? I know you spoke at our Global Liberty Institute Rising Leaders Program, and it was smashing success. Thank you for doing that. Uh, but I I just think young people need advice. It's role models, but also really careful advice on how to proceed. Yeah. Look, it's not going to be easy. I'm just going to tell you that right now. You got to get ready. You got to get ready for the blowback. Um, you know, at first I was very hurt and I tried to kind of reason with people that called me names. You know, the ad hominems, you can't really. You have to get to the point where you can laugh it off because it isn't true. You need to know yourself um, and you need to, you know, I tell people, put your big boy pants on and get ready. Um, but if you believe in truth and you believe in our civil liberties and you believe in, that open debate and dissent are necessary to achieve truth and make progress, you have to do it. Now, you don't have to blow up your entire life. Find a company if you want to work in corporate America. There are companies out there that are staying out of this fray, that believe in what I call normie capitalism. They, they are focused on product excellence, pricing that product fairly and treating employees fairly. Go work there. But what I always tell people is, do not accept a lie. Challenge every day in your own way. You don't have to blow your life up. You can go get that great job at that great company. But when you are confronted with a lie, do not accept it for fear of being 
ostracized. You cannot because we sat we sacrifice truth inch by inch and then it no longer exists. I mean, I just I think that you have to you have to. It's like I tell people just in small ways every day, like there are some schools that still do not do parent teacher conferences in person because it's too dangerous. It's ridiculous. If you are a parent, call the school and tell them you want to do the conference in person. This isn't a young person, or maybe it is. There's young parents, right? They don't know if you don't say it. And that is how they manufacture consensus. I also think there's another value that needs to be transmitted. I agree with everything you said. And also that these people that agree with what we're saying here, uh, they're not alone. There are, I, I actually believe that most people agree, but people think they're alone. And as you said, it's hard to go first. Uh, but at this point, uh, but there will be other issues where people need to go first. Uh, empowering others uh, yeah. by you speaking up a little bit allows other people to say, yes, I agree. And of course, there's pressure. Not everyone uh, wants to be the tip of the spear. Uh, believe me, I mean, you and I know what that means. It's, it's difficult. On the other hand, uh, people are, are, are interested in saying, yes, I agree. And you will embolden people. Most people That's are right. rational. Most people are, have a moral compass. Uh, it's unfortunate that many people in powerful positions do not, frankly, but uh, most of us do. And I think when you speak up, you embolden others. And, and it's necessary. It's not just a privilege of living in a free society to speak up. I, I view it as an obligation. I, I agree. mean, that's we can't have a free society if we let it go. It will be over. And that's reality. Uh, I don't think it's hyperbole. I don't think it is either. I agree with you. I mean, I also tell people, defend your neighbor's right to say a thing, even if you disagree with them. That's another thing you that's can do. That's right. You know, if a handful of people in the company had said, you know what, I don't agree with Jen, but I want to hear what she has to say, and I defend her right to say it because she'd defend mine, that would have been sufficient, but no one did that. You know, I was ostracized and made toxic, and so the seven or so employees who were protesting um, and objecting, their voices became quite loud because everybody else was silent. So you can't That's be exactly silent. That's exactly right. You cannot be silent in the face of it. And I agree with you. Most people do have good common sense and want to do the right thing, but they're afraid of the of being ostracized. The social uh, component of it is very difficult, even if you don't lose your job. You know, I've lost a ton of friends. But if we stand together, you aren't alone. And it inspires others to come and join you. That's right. And as uh, some of my new friends have told me many times, yes, we lost a lot of friends, but we made much better ones. And uh, and you're one of them, Jen. So it's great. Thanks, great guys. meeting you. Thank you so much for being on. It's a real pleasure. Uh, you're an inspiration. And, uh, you know, I know I don't have to say it, but you keep up the fight. Uh, Jennifer Say. Uh, really inspirational leader today. And the, her most recent book that is really worth buying and reading is Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. Thanks again, Jen, for appearing on the podcast. Thanks, Appreciate Scott. It. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Jennifer Say, check out her Twitter, at Jennifer Say and her Substack. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube, 
Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts today. And I'll see you next time.